While we've been focusing on the supposed dangers of CRT or critical race theory, has a much more dangerous theory been taking root in the United States? We're going to discuss it today on The Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to The Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. Today, we're going to talk about a theory that we should have been talking about all this time that we've been wringing our hands over a critical race theory. Uh, if we go back over the last couple of years, you can see that Google searches for the term critical race theory have surged. And this came after a campaign seemingly out of nowhere, spurred by the appearance of Christopher Rufo obscure documentary filmmaker who latched on to the issue. His appearance on the Tucker Carlson show got him an invitation to the White House, where Donald Trump gave him a powerful platform to uh, invigorate all of the American institutions from the presidency to the White House to the military and other commonly shared parts of our, our democracy, he was able to interject this idea that uh, diversity, inclusion, and the thinking behind it was actually very dangerous for the United States. But his real point was that these this kind of movement towards the liberalization of the United States and the browning of the United States was remaking the country that white Americans had cherished for years. And while we have succumbed to the anti-CRT movement that metastasized into state laws that prevent what can be discussed in classrooms, what can be stocked in library shelves, uh, what can be put into workplace trainings for public and private organizations, there's been a much more powerful three-word theory that we should have been paying attention to all along because it has a far greater command over the American project since the founding of America. It has been there, but it is starting to get a lot more pronounced now. And that theory is the great replacement theory. Maybe you've heard about it. We're going to talk more about it today with our guest. And our guest today is Dr. William Horn, who is the co-founder and the editor of the Activist History Review. Uh, he's also an Arthur J. Ennis postdoctoral a fellow at Villanova University. And I'm going to ask him if that is uh, still true, because it feels like this is an older uh, bio. I feel like there may have been a change since then. But either way, Dr. Horn, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for coming on today to help us get some context around great, uh, great replacement theory. But first of all, the bio, is it correct? Yeah, we're, we're still good. They still let me work there, which is amazing. <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, listen, I want to, uh, first of all, ask you, because you're a historian and you know the background for many of the things, and you often cover uh, racial history and politics. Did I overstate anything about the diversion that we've been laboring under with CRT while great replacement theory really has been consequential? I mean, and it, I think it's no accident, actually, because, you know, both of them depend on this definition of America as sort of the, the far right conception of America, one that is like, you know, white and, you know, mostly Protestant, you know, sort of the America of the second clan, to be honest with you. Um, these are related ideas. And I think it makes sense to talk about them together. Yeah. I mean, just to give people a general idea of what great replacement theory is, at the top, great replacement theory is a is it's a global theory. It didn't start here in the United States. It's actually taking taken root in many other countries. It, I believe it started in France. But the basic idea is that global elites are um, conspiring to replace people of European descent with uh, other populations in order to take control of countries and places that European folks have settled and have created and in some places are indigenous to. 
The version in the United States that's taken root is uh, popularized by Fox News, the Fox News propaganda network, people like Tucker Carlson, others who've kind of clinically found a way to talk about great replacement uh, in a way that doesn't sound super racist, but is. And, you know, the way that they talk about it uh, oftentimes is connected to immigration. The idea that Democrats really just want to have open borders because they want a lot of brown people to come across the borders so that they can create a new wave of voters. And this new group of voters would replace good white American voters and start changing the culture of the country. Uh, is that a fair description, Dr. Horn? Yeah, that's that's 100% on point. Uh, there have been versions of it that have circulated in the US like way before the time period that we're talking about, you know, just sort of like late 20th century for this particular conspiracy theory that began in France. But yeah, I mean, we've had versions of this going back to slavery for sure. What are the earlier versions? How were they characterized? So there are versions of anti-abolitionist arguments, um, you know, so sort of pro-slavery arguments uh, in the lead up to the Civil War, uh, where people like George Fitzhugh are saying essentially that if you emancipate enslaved people um, or if they're allowed somehow to, to gain their freedom, that this would be akin to like, quote unquote white slavery. Um, he also like critiques wage labor in the North, which was really exploitive um, as being a form of white slavery. And so this had to be a danger that, you know, enslavers avoided by, you know, perpetuating slavery, right? So this is obviously, you know, an argument of self-interest in exactly the same way uh, that we see this argument of self-interest from the far right today, but very similar logic at work, this idea that somehow if like the, you know, if, if power is shared uh, and if space becomes, you know, more diverse and more inclusive, um, then that's going to be, you know, death to white people, essentially. Um, it, it's it's ridiculous, um, you know, and, and we have seen time and again, historically, that it's ridiculous, but that's the claim. That's the, the lie, right? So, you know, in the example that you just gave, what is the real fear, though, if you have a bunch of freed African-Americans who were formerly enslaved, and now they're free people, what's the, the fear? Like, what are they going to do that's so dangerous? Yeah, I mean, so that evolves over time, right? So initially, the fear... Uh, that's that's ginned up uh, comes after the Haitian Revolution, which we've talked about on another program uh, together. Uh, and the idea comes from this British enslaver, uh, Brian Edwards. He theorizes that even just talking about uh, abolition around uh, enslaved people, or even like outside of their hearing, somehow magically converts them uh, into you know murderous. Um, you know, super villains or whatever, right? <laughs> um, to borrow the rhetoric from another, um, yeah, political moment. But um, but the idea though is that um, that this is going to lead to some sort of white genocide, which, by the way, is the the conspiracy theory that essentially replacement, uh, great great replacement theory replaces. Um, and so these are very similar ideas. Um, but yeah, that's that's where this idea comes from in terms of the slavery literature. Is this idea that um, you know that that freedom ultimately, or even like mentioning freedom would lead to like a massacre of white Americans. Obviously that doesn't happen when emancipation occurs, you know, beginning in 1863, uh, you know, and really across through 1865, uh, that doesn't occur. And so then what happens, of course, uh, are various other theories that, that play out that somehow there's going to be, you know, quote unquote, like racial mixing. And that this is the thing that had to be feared. I mean, of course, this idea evolves into, you know, the the era of lynching that we get you know, beginning in the 1880s. And so this is an evolving idea. It's not, it's not really one that like is designed to make sense. Um, it's not one that is rooted in reality. Uh, it's really designed simply to help 
white conservatives wield power. That's really all that it's for. And so it doesn't matter that it has been wrong every single time, right? Uh, what matters is that it allows white conservatives a justification to use violence to, to wield power for themselves. Let's, you know, put something provocative on the table. Um, what if it's not wrong? I mean, um, and I'll tell you, in, you know, in this one way, you just mentioned the words white genocide, and that is the fear that is at the bottom of all of great replacement theory is the fact that there is going to be an, a coordinated uh, white genocide. You know, so if you go back and anti-miscegenation laws really were about like stop, the stopping of race mixing and the stopping of race mixing was due to the idea that race mixing would kill the white race. It wouldn't kill any other race because to be non-white is just to be whatever, right? <laughs> like you could be anything in the, in the world, but the only race on planet earth that is dependent on no mixing with anybody else is the white race, right? Every other race is of color in some way, shape or form. So, um, so if white women just suddenly had the ability to mate with whoever they wanted to and the largest pool of available people in the world were not white i mean is it unfounded that at some point in the future you might have all brown people or you know all you know non-white people no i mean i think that that's that's a fair point you know and it's um it is sort of funny there there is this like unidirectional sexual violence that that happens in slavery and that happens in Jim Crow you know where white men are are able to access um you know black women sexually um often you know violently um and yet you know, the reverse of that, as you point out, is, is simply anathema. It's it's unthinkable, um, and that's exactly right because the ultimate fear is that um, you know interracial sex would lead to like the the, the dissolution um, of whiteness uh, in a way that um, that you know other sex wouldn't, right? Um, and so you know th that's sort of I guess is like the ultimate white fragility, isn't it? You know this this idea that like whiteness is so delicate, like it has to be like mandated and protected by violence and by the state. Um, but but that's exactly right. That's that's what those laws were designed to do. You know, what's so interesting about that too is because then if you if you accept that uh, as true as a part of the theory, then it it makes understandable why you would want to control things like um, the reproductive rights of women, specifically of white women, um, the self empowerment and feminism of white women before all other women. You know you can't have them going out just doing whatever they want to do, uh, right. especially when it comes uh, in terms of reproduction, uh, and also a lot. Of the anti-gay stuff, like anything that doesn't add to the number of babies, right? Uh, white specifically babies. white babies, white right. babies specifically, yeah. which is always in doubt because it's not as uh, robust of a birth rate. Yeah. I, it's, it's so funny you mentioned that because both the, the Buffalo shooter and also the head of CPAC make exactly this point. They say, one, immigration has to be stopped, but two, like abortion has to be outlawed and, you know, white, there need to be more white babies, right? Um, and I think it's really, you know, fascinating when you sort of look at who exactly is accessing this idea, because ultimately what we're talking about is like the two things that allow the Republican Party to continue to exist or to congeal as a party. You know, it's sort of anti-abortion positions and it's anti-immigration positions. That's like what is left policy-wise as a party. And that is rooted in great replacement theory. You know, and, and the anti-gay stuff, right? Well, of course. No, I mean, absolutely. Right. And so policing of sexuality. Absolutely. But you're, you're right. Yeah. And, the, and then the, um, the kind of idealization of the, the family. Right. You know, the nuclear two-person 
uh, unit as being the basic unit of all civilization. I think that's so funny when I hear that, right? No, is it though? <laughs> um, yeah. Maybe for the civilization you guys are trying to make. The way that this shows up, I just pulled this up because I remembered this from a few years ago, from 2017. So it's been like, it's been several years now. But Representative King at that time sent, he had tweeted out that you can't build a civilization with somebody else's baby. Yeah. And what he was talking about was immigrants, like bringing their babies in. Yeah, we do need more babies, but we don't need their we need babies. those babies. Yeah. Yeah, we don't need more of those babies in the United States. We just need more uh, white babies. And then when cornered on it, this is 2017, and this is why this is so important to me. Um, because I was thinking of this great replacement theory um, resurgence, or or I don't know if resurgence is the right word, um, popularization. Mm-hmm. Like when Tucker Carlson starts talking about it, it's in a very matter-of-the-fact kind of way. And it's not, you know, um, in the way that you normally hear Stormfront and other white supremacist groups talk about it. Right. So what he has done is just basically kind of nationalized it in a way that your grandma and your grandpa could get. Yeah. Right. Because who is the most watched? Who's most watching the Fox propaganda news network? It's older people, True. older Americans. Right. And they're kind of like, well, you know, God, well, that sounds more recent, reasonable the way that he says it. Um, but this goes all the way back to 2017 when Representative King said that about someone else's babies. And he was not at all uh, apologetic. Right. Like when he got cornered on it, this wasn't something bad to say. Um, his response when he got a lot of heat was, I meant exactly what I said. Yeah. And he was considered brave um, for saying that. I, I don't want to get into contemporary times so quickly, though. Okay. Uh, I do want to go back to some of the history of, so the abolitionist movement was one era where this reared its head because mm-hmm. there was fear that if you freed black people, that there would be this new population right. of people that could vote and do other things. Was that also an admission of the fact of something we can admit today, that this was founded as a white man's country? Right. Like they would be losing something. Yeah. No, I mean, you're exactly right. And white conservatives actually like literally campaigned with that as their slogan. America is a white man's country. They said a a white man's party for white men. That was their party slogan. Right. Uh, During the 1860s and the aftermath of emancipation. Um, And so this is very much like at the forefront of their minds, for sure. But I mean, you know, like I know, you know, we're not talking about the same thing right here in that, like, you know, I'm not saying white supremacists are right. But what I am saying is that, like, if you conceive of America as a white supremacist state, then like allowing immigration to happen, allowing emancipation to happen, like would, in fact, dissolve that state. And I think there is some fairness to that critique in the terms of the ways that our laws have been administered historically, in terms of the ways that power has been shared or, you know, really not shared historically. You know, it has like often functioned as what I would call a racial state. Um, You know, and so there is like some legitimacy to that critique. Obviously, like that argument that they're making is still evil and wrong. Right. Um, Mm -hmm, But, you know, mm -hmm. historically, that has been what America has been. It doesn't have to be that way. It's morally wrong, but it's not inaccurate. Right. No, it's it's not inaccurate at all. It's not inaccurate. It's just morally like disgusting. Yeah. yeah, yeah. (laughs) Right. So, you know, not to put you on the spot, but if you if you go back then, can you think of laws that were enacted that come specifically from that fear, that come specifically from that theory? Yeah, sure. I mean, the the Black Codes are maybe the most famous one after enslavement. And so these are the ones that essentially resurrect slavery just without the, you know, the quote unquote chattel principle. In other words, like we, it was illegal to buy and sell people still, um, you know, at, at that point. But everything else about enslavement legally was preserved by these Black Codes. So Black Americans could not like travel without permission of a white employer. 
That was a key tenant of enslavement. Um, they couldn't hire themselves out to other employers. That was a key tenant of enslavement. Um, they really couldn't do anything without the permission of white employers and sort of the white local government. And again, this is exactly how enslavement functioned. Um, they had no legal rights. They couldn't testify. They couldn't serve on juries. Like these are all key elements of the antebellum state. And we see them replicated after emancipation. Um, obviously, like through black organizing, you know, black Americans were able to overturn those uh, beginning in 1866. And so, you know, those codes do eventually disappear. Um, they're resurrected again during Jim Crow in various laws. But I think if we're looking at for a very clear example, uh, the black codes would be a very clear one. This idea that, you know, that racial and social mobility uh, is something that just simply couldn't be allowed to happen. Um, and so there had to be other ways to prevent it other than um, sort of the, the the property principle that uh, that that was the basis of, of enslavement. You, um, if you read the the mid-1950s Republican GOP platform, uh, which I did two days ago because I'm writing something. So I'm not saying this like, oh, yeah, you know, I just, you know, whatever. I'm doing this from memory. No, right. I just read it. And the thing that shocked me about it was even by the mid-1950s, a lot of the language had, had been smoothed over. Mm -hmm. So it got a lot more towards that this is a country for everybody. And this is a country where everybody should have life and freedom and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, so, it, you know, there was this idea that, um, that we came to a time where the major ideas of the great replacement theory and, and structural racism had to be papered over and had to be covered with words. And then you get to the 1960s and 1970s where you have like an outgrowth of feminism, of uh, racial politics that uh, is, are based in liberation, um, a pushback on all kind of oppressive systems in the United States from the groups that are being hurt, right? Um, and there's a sense that those groups made a major advancement. Right, like post, you know, 1964 civil rights, you know, um, legislation that there was an aftermath, kind of like we became the new America, the multiracial democracy America where everybody can, you know, can uh, do well. Is that what's being fought back against was this idea that there was this major upset in the 60s and the 70s? And now there's an attempt to go back. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. And if there's an again that that people are trying to get to with this "Make America Great Again" thing, it, it is the Jim Crow state. You know, that's that's sort of is the prior iteration of the state that we're in. I mean, I don't even think it's that papered over in terms of the rhetoric and in terms of the ideology. It's pretty straightforward. Um, and you see that politics beginning really in earnest um, with sort of a, right alongside the the first civil rights movements. You know, so we have some, you know, small scale integration that's happening in 1948 uh, when President Truman desegregates the U.S. military. Uh, right after that, uh, you see the Dixie, quote unquote, Dixiecrat revolt, right, where um, white Southerners, both the Democratic Party of Truman um, and sort of set up their own with the Confederate flag as like their emblem, um, overtly racist party. Um, you know, you see this again, you know, after Brown v. Board uh, with the quote unquote citizens councils, which again, use the Confederate flag as their emblem. Um, you know, there, it, there's a rich history of, you know, whenever there is any civil rights advancement at all, right, there is this white backlash and it is one that is accompanied by or framed in these fears um, of a quote unquote replacement or of a destruction of America. And of course, what they mean by that is simply the destruction of the white supremacist state. Um, you know, and that's not wrong, but that's also not bad, you know? So, um, and again, sort of like touching back on this point that we've, 
you know, thought about previously, I guess, you know, there are like different iterations of, of the way our state has functioned. Um, and, you know, when you get, you know, major advancements like we get in the 1960s, uh, then you get immediately after that Richard Nixon running on a Southern strategy, overtly racist rhetoric. Yeah, I think we don't, especially if we're of a certain age where, you know, our, you know, like what we remember and what we know doesn't go back far enough. Some of these things could seem new. So when we hear things kind of like the Trumpism stuff, it could feel really new, but there's roots of it that go back like well before Trump, you know, go back to Reagan and beyond. You know, what is so interesting to me is that I have multiracial children, not biracial children. I have multiracial children. And um, I never really think about it. I, I They are definitely different than I am. They are definitely different than I am uh, in a lot of ways. And they are not being raised to be me and to be the way that I was raised. And, um, you know, I often joke that I'm the only, um, I'm the only black person and working class person in my house. Um, <laughs> um, but I never really think about it in terms of I'm going extinct. Like, like, like this, it would be hard to sell me on anything that made me feel like, oh my God, I'm going extinct. Can you help me at all? Like what, why that's such an alluring kind of hook when you think about the fact you look at Congress and you ask yourself how many white males and how many white people are in Congress, straight old white people uh, in Congress. When you talk about judges and you talk about governors, right? Like I actually can't name how many of color governors are there? Like how many black governors are there? Is there even one black governor? I don't even think there is, to be very honest with you, anywhere in the country. But I can sell you on the idea that you're going extinct. And it's such a powerful hook. Maybe you can't help me, but help me if you can understand that hook. I just, I, it's, not an, it's not an idea that's grounded in reality, right? It's an idea that is grounded in, in this, you know, attempt to wield power, um, and to, you know, to punish, to limit, to even eliminate, you know, people who are different than you. Um, it, it's not like reality, right? It, it's not meant to make sense. It's meant to wield power, you know? Um, and so I, I, you know, I mean, we could, we could talk about it all day. And, you know, I, I think that we can sort of rationalize, well, what they really mean is this, right? And I mean, I think there's some validity to that. You know, what they really mean is like, you know, this idea that like America is a white nation, America is a Christian nation, America is, you know, whatever, fill in the blank, right? That is evaporating and it should evaporate, right? Um, and so maybe we can sort of make that argument for them. But like, again, to your point, materially, like the people who are in power are still, you know, if we're talking about the government, you know, if we're talking about local government, you know, in many places, if we're talking about you know, I don't know, even the economy, right? Like the vast majority of people who are in positions of power are white, um, are straight, I think, lean to the right, you know, like this is, you know, where is this grounded in reality? The only place it's grounded in reality is in this desire to wield power. It is, a, it's a myth, it's, it's a lie, you know, but it's one that's useful. Um, and it's one that has, you know, some, some nostalgia that's tied up in it for people. And that's what makes it really dangerous. You know, I feel like the fear being so real proves a point that most of those folks would disagree with, which is that uh, racism and white privilege is embedded in the systems. You wouldn't fear the change so much if you didn't think there would be a loss of power and a loss of advantage, right? So on the one hand, you're arguing, oh, no, God, there's no such thing as white privilege. There's no such thing as like, you know, ad, you know, white advantage in the system, blah, blah, blah. But you fear 
not being 100% in control of the system because you fear what? Losing some of those advantages. Yeah, no, it reminds me a lot. I'm, I'm teaching uh, Frederick Douglass's narrative right now, his first autobiography in one of my classes. It reminds me of this uh, sort of instance where he has this uh, overseer, Mr. Gore, who murders someone in cold blood. And Mr. Gore is like defending himself to the enslaver you know, as to why he murdered this person, because, of course, this cost the enslaver like $13,000 in today's dollars, you know, and quite a sum, you know. Um, and the reason that he murdered him was just because he like would not, you know, get up and, and allow Mr. Gore to beat him, um, you know. And, and Mr. Gore is talking to the enslaver and he's like, look, um, you know, if, if we allow any kind of disobedience at all, then the next step is white slavery. You know, and, and that really is, I think, exactly the fear is, is this idea that like, you know, although white America often pretends that we live in an egalitarian democracy and often pretends that race doesn't matter. Right. Like deep down, deep down, they know. Right. Um, and that's exactly why, you know, there is such a fight to maintain these systems of oppression, to maintain systems of inequality, disenfranchisement, you know, you need schools. Right. Because ultimately, they know this is a system of privilege and a system of power, one that benefits them, the expense of everybody else. And then when they talk about the universal talk about like, you know, these are universal principles that are in the Constitution. We did a show last week on um, the attack on the founding principles of the United States. And I had a, uh, a classical liberal person who um, who I go back and forth on Twitter with. So he held up that guard, that side. And I gave the like, listen, dude, these these weren't my four, like these weren't fathers of any sort to me and to right. my people. And these founding uh, ideals that you guys speak of, um, they're not really my founding ideals. Deals, right? Like, you know, in this whole, oh, they were enlightenment area. Listen, all you have to do is read that three fifths part. And we know that we're talking about a different level of religiousness about these, you know, these concepts. But, but going all the way back, you know, to like the framers, when they are framing these things, is it the universality that people talk about now? Like, listen, this is for all people. And the rule, the laws are for the same for everybody. There's no such thing as systemic racism or whatnot. Is that because white is seen as the default. So as long as it's equal for all white people, right? Like it is equality. It really is equality as long as it's equality of white people, but not equality of any of the other groups. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, Trump and, and other white conservatives say they, they call them real Americans. They say, you know, they're, they're fighting for quote unquote real Americans. And I, I think what is embedded in there is this idea you know, of the Dred Scott decision that people who are not white can't be full citizens and can't be entitled to the full rights of the American state, you know? And so, I mean, I think that is kind of like the underlying logic there actually, yeah, is that, you know, um, it is equality because, you know, like the only real people, the quote unquote real Americans are white, you know, like this is this is the part that is unsaid. And so that's why I think, you know, it's it's it was, you know, I don't know, so nice that you brought up critical race theory alongside of this, because that's exactly what critical race theory, like in reality, like actually points to is the way that the state actually functions to suppress people of color, you know, to suppress people who, who are, you know, different or marginalized in various ways. Right. Um, and and this is, of course, why it is so uh, antithetical to this movement, why they are on the one hand, you know, advancing great replacement theory. And then on the other hand, saying that, like, you know, that that critiquing that is somehow like the end of the world and that people who critique that should be like drummed out of their jobs and, you know, I don't know, you fill in the blank, right? Um, you know, there, it's no accident that we get these two together. And I think it was really uh, insightful for you to, to frame it that way. When I feel like, you know, 
there's a fight against theories, which is such a weird fight to wage. Like, right. Like I'm going to do, like, if you would have told me before the anti CRT thing, like, listen, I'm going to do a campaign against an obscure theory that's taught in legal schools. (laughs) I would have been like, yeah, do you, is there anything else you can do besides that? Because that feels like a loser of things that you could possibly win at. No, Chris, I really think critical theory is something that the public would understand <laughs> totally and it, they would get and we could you know campaign against but the the lure i'm always thinking about what's the lure what's the hook like why could you know people uh connect with that so much and i do connect it to the idea that it is the greatest threat to uh to the great replacement right like the idea that your institutions would start um unearthing all the ways in which they have been unjust and unequal to um to historically marginalized people and the demand that they start seeing all people like, really? Oh my God, you made my beer gay. You know, like that whole thing. <laughs> I, can, I can see how that would just be super displacing for some people. And I wonder if there's anything in history, maybe you could, you could help me with this part. I, I have not studied enough the transition in South Africa mm. from, you know, being like a colonial, settler colonial, white supremacist uh, state with all the laws in place to, to keep it that way. Transferring into, I don't know what you would call it today, like, you know, uh, what it is. But there had to be a psychological change in there somewhere where the white people survived. Survived enough to still be running a lot of things. So Yeah, I mean, so this is like less at the forefront of the far right. Um, right now. But if we think back a few years, there was like a major emphasis on like Venezuela and South Africa. Um, and the reason for that is is because of property. Um, and so for the South African example, uh, my understanding is that the South African state uh, had sort of pledged as they're ending apartheid uh, to return land back to sort of its rightful indigenous landowners. And they have not. Um, and I think that that's I mean, and, and maybe that has changed since I last read about it and last read about it a few years ago. Um, but my understanding is, is that they still have not. Right. Um, and so I, sort of what we see there is kind of like, in some ways, the typical like, quote unquote, post-colonial state that calls itself post-colonial, but then still sort of keeps the vestiges of colonialism in place. Um, and that's often what we have seen um, in societies that have been you know, quote unquote, racial states uh, that have been kind of moved into something else, that something else is, you know, still a a sort of a semi-colonial or legacy colonial regime. That's kind of my sense of the South African situation. Although like you, like that's not my primary area of research. Like that's just something I read about a few years ago uh, when it was at the forefront of like the far right uh, talking points. No, it's so interesting. I've seen uh, file footage of white people being interviewed before the transition and their sense of it being so unfair that the country that they might lose some of their land and that, you know, like Africa was, they were indigenous now to Africa right. and whatever this sense of like unfairness to them, even as they had whites or black servants walking back behind them as they're being interviewed or whatnot. And they're sitting there with like iced tea and, you know, like having this, these kind of, it, it's just so, so symbolic of where we are today. But I do want to say this, this is, I want to keep going back to the, it's not based on irrational fear. Because part of it is accurate in this one way. I believe it wouldn't be this desperate and you wouldn't see all these laws being passed if there wasn't a real credible threat that some things were ending in terms of total white domination of all aspects of American life. That is, in some ways, being upset 
the number of kids in public schools, for instance, that are now of color um, is the majority, right? So they're not, it's not a minority of kids anymore. It's a majority of kids, right? Um, well, the more you see things like that starting to happen, I think it creates a higher level of desperation. Like you'll become more desperate. I've, I've termed where we are right now, late stage white supremacy. And what will happen in late stage white supremacy is people will start trying to preserve the, um, or extend the life of white supremacy, knowing that an end is coming. They will start trying to put in place structures that prevent the end from being so bad. For right? them. Like, um, for them. Yeah. Right. Well, that's right. a good point. <laughs> uh, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, from being so bad for them. But I don't know what the long game is. You're still going to have grandchildren and great-grandchildren. Yeah. You know, I think about this a lot. There, and there have been regimes that have been very successful in repackaging white supremacy. Um, the Georgetown philosopher Olafemi uh, Tewao calls that, quote-unquote, elite capture. Um, that's a term that he uses mm-hmm. to describe mm-hmm. this idea that basically like those in power like capture the ideas of a, a progressive movement, um, and then sort of like repackage their stuff, like as those ideas, you know? And so if we think about like the various wide ranging iterations of what DEI means, DEI could mean like doing literal justice work. DEI could also be like just having a poster at your workplace, you know, like, mm-hmm, I mean, mm-hmm. and, and I think that that kind of illustrates how those ideas can be misappropriated, you know, ideas that are designed to create um, you know, more equitable systems, in fact, wind up sort of perpetuating systems of inequality, because what they also do is sort of say to people who have been fighting this fight for a long time, like, hey, look, you won. These people are not stupid. They know they have not won. Right. And and there's a sort of like, you know, jadedness or, you know, a sort of a frustration that, that, that can result out of that. Right. This idea that like, well, we fought this hard, you know, and, and yet still like, at the end of the day, you know, we're still being treated in the same way. That, that was like often like formerly enslaved people's, you know, experiences after enslavement was like, you know, this, this is much the same, you know, often like working on their former enslavers farms, right? Is much the same as what they had experienced previously, you know? And so I think that there is sort of an elite capture, this powerful weapon, um, you know, on behalf of really those in power and in, in our case, white supremacy. And they are actually because they're in control of the dominant, like, you know, uh, broadcast networks and the yeah. dominant, like they can, it's easy to capture the ideas when you own the means of production in terms of media stuff, right? Yeah. In terms of creative organizations. Um, there's this guy, in case people think I'm making too much of this, there's this guy named Derek Black, who's the son of the uh, the guy who started Stormfront, which is an underground white supremacist network and uh, goes back decades, goes back. I, I believe I first became aware in the 90s or the late 80s of some of the Aryan Nation people and the way that they would connect with each other. Um, I was part of an organization called Anti-Racist Action. And back then we would like intercept a lot of the Aryan Nation stuff, right? Um, and this this guy actually left the white supremacy movement and renounced it. And he says that people, his he says that his grandparents and the people in his former community watch uh, Tucker Carlson multiple times. Uh, they replay the same show sometimes because they feel like he has done such a good job of saying everything that they ever wanted to say that they can't even believe that it's on major TV. They have felt fringe for so long that now they can't believe that it's like so mainstream. Uh, and you probably remember this. People like David Duke and others made a first attempt years ago to get like a facelift. 
He went he went in and got cosmetic surgery, literal cosmetic cosmetic surgery, tried to remake himself and then ran for governor uh, and wanted to be a mainstream Republican candidate. And at that time, it was too soon, too soon. Republicans back then were like, nah, dude, we don't need like a literal right. Klansman. He, I mean, he was fairly close to winning in Louisiana. I'm from Louisiana, so I remember that campaign. No. I was a kid at the time, but um, he, he, I think he got like 40 something percent of the vote, which I mean, at the time, Louisiana was kind of lean D anyway. And so- that was very eye-opening for a lot of people. Um, and I do kind of wonder if maybe that gets the attention of some people like Newt Gingrich and, and others who have fanned the flames of the far right at a national level. Um, because it was, you know, from my, you know, and again, I'm you know, just thinking about this retrospectively, of course, but in my experience, uh, you know, growing up in that state, uh, it seemed like a pretty successful effort, actually, despite losing the governorship. Forty percent is still pretty good. I mean, that's a lot. For, <laughs> yeah, for that's a lot. Running for... is the former KKK guy, right? <laughs> I mean, that's, that's too much. <laughs> oh my God, Louisiana! Yeah. You know, I actually, um, I think you and I talked about this on one of the other podcasts that we did, but um, I can remember in the seventies, I believe it was the seventies, when I was young, um, when Dutch Morial was running for mayor in uh, in New Orleans um, to be the first black mayor uh, of New Orleans. And he won. That was, in our way, a lot like the uh, Obama moment for us before there was Obama. That was like, oh, my God, we have a black mayor now. Every right. racism is over. Yes. You know, um, <laughs> it's all going to be fine now. I remember my dad saying then, don't get too excited or out of hand with this because his basic point was, Every one of these two steps forward has a step or two back, right? So success is met with, you know, uh, it's like call and response. Right. You advance. And then do you think that what we're seeing right now with all this Tucker Carlson stuff, the Trump stuff or whatnot, is part of the natural ebb and flow? So we swing that way once they, they feel like we've gotten too successful. Jay-Z and Oprah and, you know, like all these people, they look up and they're like, well, you guys are richer than us. So, um, so there's backlash, right? But it's not all. It's not always stable. So does that mean I, I could be okay in feeling like this Trump stuff will burn out and it'll cause the other side, you know, to like? So maybe I shouldn't be so afraid because you know history has taught us that it's an ebb and flow. You know, after Reconstruction, you had I don't know what I'm saying here, except for that's like, a big old ebb though. You're talking about a hundred years between <laughs> emancipation true. and the civil rights movement. Like that's a big yeah, that's ebb, true. you know. <laughs> I, mean, I, I agree with the sentiment, but I love that idea. This is what I was thinking, right? I love that idea, you know, that, that Dr. King, you know, the way Dr. King frames it, that like the arc of the universe bends towards justice. You know, I'm not like 100% sure. I've like read a lot of his stuff and thought about his work a lot. I don't know that like he actually believes that, you know, um, even as he's saying it, you know, I think that this is aspirational, you know, but like the best of us is aspirational, Right. You know, and so I think that like there is, you know, maybe there is some some truth to that, you know, in terms of movement building. But I mean, I, I, I just I can't help but think about, you know, the collapse of Reconstruction in much of the Deep South, you know, in Louisiana, South Carolina are sort of like outliers. Mississippi in some areas are outliers to this, but it's rapid. You're talking about by 1870 you know, that black Americans have lost the rights that they won basically only two years previous to that in 1868, you know, and then don't have access to those rights again for another almost century. You know, that's, that's substantial. That's devastating, you know? And so I do think there is a very real danger here. You know, I, I don't mean to 
you know, dismiss the work of, you know, of lawyers and, and of activists and organizers, you know, and dismiss the very real change that we've seen in our society. But these types of movements are extremely dangerous. And so I'm very worried about hearing a presidential candidate, you know, publicly cite the great replacement theory in his rally speeches. Um, you know, I, I think that that's extremely dangerous. Um, but it doesn't have to be, I guess. It shouldn't be happening at all, you know, but it, but it doesn't have to be, you know, sort of an inevitable crisis. Like nothing's inevitable, you know. Um, so I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm hopeful, you know what I mean? But at the same time, I, I can't dismiss that, that danger, you know. That's just, that's a big ebb. <laughs> it's a big ebb. My response. Well, I'll think, you know, I, I'll, I'll land somewhere in the middle of those two things. So the arc of the universe being long and bending towards justice is something that I've always remembered about Dr. King's uh, thinking that stuck with me. You go back 100 years from now, or 100 years back, and there are just things that are completely unavailable to us, people as marginalized people. There are ways of living. Right now, we have gay marriage. Uh, we have the ability to move freely. We have the ability to do a lot of things. And that came with a lot of moving forward and moving backwards over time. And the 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 forward movement of that, to, to me, makes me believe the future is always progressive right? The future is always progressive. All nations that do better over time actually become more and more progressive over time. Um, not to the point of licentiousness, because we have some uh, nations that actually like, you know, that became their vice that killed them. But um, in thinking that, and I've said that to people, progressive people today, you know, recently, um, who who are like, they think that's a very dangerous thought because they see all the backtracking that we're doing now. So a couple of thoughts about that. One, you mentioned ab abolitionists earlier or whatnot. There was always a mental toughness of the people that were fighting for the rights that doesn't exist anymore. So the mental toughness of the people that were trying to stop us from having rights has remained consistent from day one until now. They have never lost their mental toughness about what they want in the world. But those of us who became the beneficiaries of a lot of the great kind of movement forward um, have the luxury, I think, of resting on our laurels for what the fight really is you really do have to fight for these things, which is why now you're having, you know, it was a big fight to get gay marriage, but now you're, um, you're having kind of telegraphed signs that law can change again, right? Like that, uh, you know, Supreme court case here or there might overturn the ability to, to have protections as a gay person. Right. Um, that's when I think, and this is why I said, I will end in the middle. I do think we're going to keep moving forward, but I do think that the moment you should be con concerned that you're about to take a big L is when laws start changing. Like when precedents start changing, precedents start changing. And that's where we are now. Like when you start passing state laws that limit what people can teach, what they can, can critique, what parts of the system uh, or the, the, the national story they can address or attack, that to me is where it becomes serious. Yeah, this is the first semester where I've had students who in their junior and senior years couldn't. But, you know, this is when they're taking U.S. history in most state curriculums, could not learn about the things that I'm teaching them about. And they brought this up in class, you know, um, and obviously, you know, they, they don't think that it's a good thing. Right. Um, you know, as students, they want to know what's what. Um, but, you know, I think that that, you know, there are those kind of real serious warning signs now. And again, that's that doesn't point to me to inevitability. I completely agree with you, um, you know, that 
uh, societies that that thrive, you know, sort of do become more progressive and more egalitarian slowly over time, right? But there is, I think, still a, a very real danger, and, and hopefully, you know, hopefully I'm wrong. <laughs> I would love to be wrong, you know, um, and I'm wrong all the time. So, you know, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. but but I, I, yeah, I do think there's some serious cause for concern. I, I think, you know, a Republican presidential candidate simply could not say 10 years ago what Donald Trump is saying today. You know, maybe this is partly you know, sort of a backlash to the Obama presidency or, you know, to the success of, of very, you know, public black figures, like you were mentioning a moment ago, um, you know, and maybe it's something that'll fizzle out. I, I think that's, I think that's entirely possible. You know, are people willing to upend their lives um, for, you know, really something that doesn't, for the vast majority of them, benefit them substantially, you know, like, I, it doesn't seem like a good idea. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know. I know. I know we're like getting probably way off topic, but I just, you know, this is something I think about a lot and I know you do too. Um, and so I just, I appreciate that conversation. You know, I think it's uh, the topic itself is so far ranging. It is so, there are so many disciplines that need to be, if you're going to do a real nuanced look and study what we're talking about, great replacement theory and how it has an impact on our political life and our social life right now. That would go into so many different areas. That would go so many different directions. But the the clearest that you should be about it is when you see uh, Vivek Ramaswamy on stage say, "Great re- replacement theory isn't some uh, far right wing, you know, uh, um, theory. It's what's actually happening." Now you have a first generation Indian American standing on stage auditioning for the vice presidency with Donald Trump. So now what you have is multicultural, multiracial white supremacy, which is a new invention. Like, right? Like, it's a new invention. Well, I see you shaking your head. It's not I mean, a new invention? <laughs> sort of. I mean, I, but I think mostly, right? But, like, when we're thinking about, like, colonial states, and this is something, you know, Dr. Tewau talks about in his book, but there is, and this is something France Fanon, other thinkers write about as well, Fanon calls them captured intellectuals. But there are sort of this, like, this is colonial, like, managerial class. You know, there are people who who buy into the system because they understand like their positionality gives them power, you know? Um, and so we have, for example, like, you know, members of the Nazi party in Germany who were gay and openly gay, you know, and, you know, who still espouse this very, you know, homophobic ideology up to the point of them being killed. Right. Uh, as, as party, like, Active party members being killed in Kristallnacht, right? Uh, you have like exam or Night of the Long Lives, excuse me, uh, Night of the Long Knives. Um, we have, you know, uh, examples of that, you know. So there, it, I don't want to say like that this is this is something we haven't seen before, but I do think it's something that is indicative of like kind of the most resilient fascist movements um, historically and. Again, that's something that I, I find really troubling, you know, it, and I think that that, you know, your your point about, um, you know, this this statement and what it might mean as a sort of a multiracial party of white supremacy um, is one that yeah is, is really dangerous historically. Yeah, I feel like and I do have a question about um well, let me just say this really quick. I do think that the battle that we're seeing, if there was a, a left and a right or an up and a down or a black and a white, I think it's the the competition of two ideas. America as a multiracial um, democracy versus uh, America as a monoracial, uh, monotheistic, uh, mono uh, kind of ideological country. 
those two ideals cannot live in the same place and share a system. Um, And many of those of us who are in the tradition of civil rights and Dr. King or whatnot, the narrative, the American narrative for that group is we've made eventual progress over time and we're becoming much more shared. It's becoming a shared country and a nation. The other team is saying, um, no, it's never been a shared country. This is our country. We are the real people here and you're trying to displace us. Um, which is why in Charlottesville, you have young white men with tiki torches ro- walking down the street saying, you will not replace us as their highest call. That's their biggest call that they can make right now. And I think it's because of those two competing visions that we have for America. And, you know, I can't say who's going to win. But, um, you know, so that commentary aside, though, you probably get tired of people likening everything to um, uh, 1945 Germany. <laughs> uh, I know a lot of, you know, it gets under a lot of historian skin when we we compare everything to Germany uh, <laughs> and, and, you know, and to that. But man, it's hard not to like look at the fact that, yeah. you know, economic kind of displacement made Germans feel mm-hmm. like their nation was being taken from them. Right. You know, am I wrong? Well, no, I mean, I think you're exactly <laughs> right, you know, and I, I've I, I don't mind those comparisons. I think they're apt in this case. Um, you know, I think there are times where this is just a stretch or this is just a silly posture, right? But I think those comparisons, and I, I've made them in, in writing now for a while, but I, I think are, are correct. You know, in the Weimar state, so this is Germany before the Nazis took over, it was the most diverse, multicultural, um, you know, egalitarian state in Western Europe pre-World War II, you know, and really pre-Nazi Germany. Um, You know, we have sort of like openly gay people, um, you know, we have, you know, practicing, you know, living their lives, practicing, right? Just living their lives, right? You have, you know, people who are like ethnic minorities. These are different groups than, of course, would be applicable to our situation. But again, like sort of living lives of dignity, Polish people, you have Jewish people, Roma people. um, These are all anathema to sort of what, um, you know, Hitler and the far right in Germany conceived of as like, quote unquote, real Germans. But the terminology that's being used, the phrases, the slogans that are being used, you pointed to one from Charlotte, Charlottesville, uh, you know, the, the other iteration of that same phrase was Jews will not replace us, which again goes directly to the great replacement theory. Uh, they also chanted blood and soil, which is a Nazi slogan. Um, you know, there are very real parallels that are not you know, like made up, you know, in sort of the the fraught, paranoid corners of Twitter, but are in fact like advanced by white supremacists and neo-Nazis themselves as members of this sort of like far right and, and you know, white conservative coalition. They're, they're making these comparisons too, right? Um, and so I think it's, it's apt for us, you know, as, as thinking people to say, well, you know, let's let's take a minute and let's look at this. You know, there are really some similarities in terms of situation. There are really, you know, some similarities in terms of tactics. And again, that's something that, you know, we should pause and pay attention to. That doesn't mean again that like, you know, this is going to magically transform into that type of a situation uh, as what transpired in Nazi Germany, you know, but it does mean that it's a dangerous movement. Um, And I think that that's really uh, an important takeaway. My focus on education is so much around the idea that if you don't even know what you just said, if you don't know that story and you haven't read much about it and you didn't study it in high school, that you just wouldn't be able to see the cues. You just wouldn't be able to see the signs. And now people are literally trying to um, limit what can be taught and learned and discussed, which to me is so un-American. 
um, maybe it's perfectly American in, in tradition, but it feels like in conflict with the American ideal. Um, that you would, you know, and, and you would think that we learned our lesson with McCarthy and McCarthyism and, you know, other areas of, uh, other eras of kind of like really restrictive thought that broke out. Um, but anyway, so, so let, let's convert just a little bit. We don't have a ton of time left. So when you think about historically all of these backlash movements, what are, who are the people that you think of that, uh, that are the good people? Who are the good people in all these eras? Who were the people that uh, provided a counter narrative to the backlash narrative? Who were the heroes? Sure. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. Um, you know, I think a lot about W.E.B. Du Bois, about, you know, black radicals and intellectuals. You know, um, I, I think a lot about the, the people during Reconstruction, uh, especially black politicians, formerly enslaved politicians, um, you know, the some of the. I guess, loudest voices for, for equality after emancipation, of course, were formerly enslaved people, you know? And so some of my research, you know, looks at politicians like John Gare in Louisiana, who's ultimately assassinated by white supremacists for, you know, his advocacy for his work, um, really rewriting the state constitution. But these are people who were successful. They banded together. They did rewrite the state laws. You know, they did get the, the 14th and 15th amendments pushed through. You know, in, in Congress, these are people and then in the state legislatures, these are people who made real tangible changes. Um, you know, we think about Rosa Parks often as sort of like, you know, it's such a whitewash story, the way that we talk about it, uh, and especially like during Black, black History Month, this idea that there's just this poor old black lady who was tired. Right. And this is, you know, a <laughs> radical woman. I mean, it's just yeah. very, very educated, very yeah. active, you know, radical woman, a woman who, you know, in, in many respects, admired and supported Malcolm X. You know, this is this is not someone who is just, you know, some random woman who was tired, you know, who happened to be black and didn't want to get up. You know, there are heroes all throughout, um, you know, the history of these struggles. And often, you know, even kind of unfortunately, when we teach about this stuff in schools and that's becoming harder, they're still pushed to the margins. Um but but there there are heroes at, at every turn from every walk of life. I think about Fannie Lou Hamer, you know, who grew up a, a sharecropper, you know, who um, if you listen to her testimony at the 1964 DNC, you know, she is um, talking about being not being allowed to vote, you know, being brutalized by white police officers, you know, her employer firing her for trying to vote, you know, and this is someone who still after all of that, you know, continues to organize. You know, creates a, a freedom farm movement, you know, to help feed her community. This is a really powerful advocate. It's someone, you know, these are people who we really should be celebrating, I guess, um, you know, rather than maybe some of the people who are, you know, in our in our books uh, who have done some real harm. You know, this is going to seem like an unfair addition because it comes so late in the podcast. But I have this idea that it's going to be very hard to be successful if we can't construct a positive white identity. If we can't offer people a an avenue to a positive white identity, we can't have the only option be um, whiteness is bad uh, or you're, you're racist, right? Because if, if those are your two choices, I'd rather choose uh, um, an immutable part of me is not bad. So I'm, I guess if my only two choices are racism or, or a negative you know, uh, identity, I'm going to choose racism. So a positive white identity, I think, needs, first of all, construction. I think we need to have like uh, examples we need to have. So if you were to build and think about a white curriculum, 
that was not an exclusionary racist curriculum of whiteness, but was a positive, like, like, let's say brown people do take over the United States and there's, there's still this group called white people, right? They're going to still need a positive identity of some sort. Um, and they're going to become a minority. And for the rest of us, once they be, let's say we took over and, you know, we painted the white house black and we took everything over. <laughs> we don't want to become what white supremacy used to be in our treatment of white people. If they are, you know, now just people. Yeah. So <laughs> I know it's a provocative question, but you know, what would you construct as the curriculum for a positive white identity? Yeah, no, that's, that's a great question. Um, I think there is, a problem in it simply in the way that we conceive of whiteness as negatively framed or formulated against blackness. You know, like in many respects, like our country, both like legalistically, but also ideologically is grounded in this idea of anti-blackness, you know? And so often we have immigrant groups who are like, you know, I show some images of like political cartoons in my classes. Sometimes the immigrant groups are, are like directly compared to black people as, as sort of like, you know, this, they're too similar, right? You know, in the eyes of the white audience and, and thus like they need to be excluded. And then this evolves over time. And so we look at a different set of images, right? Um, and I think it's really profound in some, in some respects for students to realize the way that these racial terms uh, and parameters, these categories evolve over time. But the way that we've historically conceived of whiteness is simply like that which is not black, right? Um, you know, or not, not associated with blackness in the way that um, white supremacists have done with uh, with immigrant groups, you know, and so I think that there is like kind of an underlying problem there. First part of my answer. Second part of my answer, though, is that there are some really great egalitarian thinkers and and people also who change dramatically. You know, like I, I sort of joke around with my kids a little bit because they tell me what they're learning in school, um, and they're you know they're in grade school right now, so it's all like sort of the whitewashed version of everything. And they'll come home and they'll say, dad, that probably wasn't true. Right. And I'm like, no, it, it, it wasn't, you know, but like, I mean, there, if we're thinking about like just presidents, so like really big picture level, you know, we have people like Harry Truman, we have people like Lyndon Johnson who were racist, but who also did incredible things to advance equality in our country. We have FDR, another, if we're just thinking president level, right, we have people who have done important things on the policy level, we have advanced equality albeit in like, you know, problematic or difficult or, you know, um, incomplete ways, but that has value. That's really important, you know? Um, and so, you know, in some ways, I guess like there is a possibility there to go back to, um, to revisit, I would say a curriculum that we might see sort of in the 1930s U S when Jim Crow is still functional. And again, this is not good, but like, there are characters and there are stories that white America used to tell itself about its public figures and its public institutions that it, it doesn't anymore. Um, and that's because of integration and that's because of the white backlashes that have, you know, resulted from, you know, advancements in equality and advancements in civil rights. Um, but there is a, a historical curriculum there, you know, the sort of the quote unquote new deal curriculum, you know, in which, um, you know, white Americans celebrated working class people, white ones, right? You know, so again, this is a fraught history, but, you know, it's one that white America has taught itself before, you know, it's just, again, not in a way that embraces equality, not in a way, um, you know, that embraces, you know, racial and ethnic, um, you know, and sexual diversity. Um, but those examples are all there, you know, like that is a possible t topic to broach, right? Like, 
I sleep okay as a white man, you know, like I'm okay, <laughs> I'm okay with what I'm doing, you know, to, yeah. to, to contribute. Right. Um, you know, and so like, I don't think that there is in fact this binary, but I think this is a story that white people tell themselves. I think you're exactly right. Um, and I think part of that is in fact, uh, simply sort of a tool to advance their interests. Like one of the, I, I get like a, some angry emails sometimes, which is fine. Um, and like one of the weirdest set of emails I got was because I wrote something about my own family's history with white supremacy. And like that made the racists like so mad in, in ways that I really didn't anticipate because I'm just talking about my own family. And I'm like, really, it's just not great to be racist. And they're like, how can you disrespect your family, your forefathers? And the implication there is like, you have to be racist because your parents were racist and their grandparents were racist, you know? And this is such an absurd way to live and to think about the world, you know? Like, I can, I think at the one, on one hand, as a white person say, like, these are really bad things that my ancestors did. And then on the other hand, like, you know, love my grandmother or, you know, whomever, like as, as people who took care of me, you know, like, I don't think we need to view the world in this sharp binary way. That's an imposition, you know, that, that white supremacists make upon the rest of us. Um, you know, and that's one that we definitely should be pushing back against. So I really appreciate the question. I know I talked way too long. You should cut out some of this. But <laughs> no, 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 no. I don't think you can talk too long on this because I think we need kind of, first of all, we need expert attention to this thing that I think is so important. And, you know, I will probably get hate from some folks for this idea that I have that you have to create a construction of a entirely white identity that is not bad, right? Like, I love my children, and I love the goodness of my children in their innocence, and I am protective of that, and there is no kind of love that I have that has superseded that ever. So if I was a white person, and you were telling me that my white kids could not be white without being bad in some way, shape, or form, you would have a fight from me. If Chris Stewart was a white person sure. with white kids, I would kick your ass for saying that about my kids, right? Right. So um, I don't know what it's like to be fully white and to you know live on that side, but I do know that as a parent, that would probably be the same. Like it would probably carry over, and I would probably want if I wanted to be a good white person, I would probably want to offer my kids um, examples. So first of all, I might have to reject one idea as a marginalized person. Not every white person was racist during the the biggest eras of racism, right? Not everybody was. So this idea that just if you were white, you were part of the bad thing. You weren't fighting it in any kind of way, you know, whatever. Black people have, have enjoyed the support, for instance, of Jews, right? If you look in the 1960s, if you were white and you were supporting black people and black rights, there was a good chance that you were Jewish, right? Um, and, and I would want my kids to know that. Absolutely. Right? I would want my kids to know that. I would want my kids to know about John Brown, I would want my of kids course. to know about Dorothy Day, yeah. right? Like, you know, and... Eugene Debs. There is this, like, really robust, like, uh, multiracial socialist movement at the beginning of the 20th century. Eugene Debs is sort of the, the most famous of those people. They're not super famous because um, America is just very reactionary, you know, when it comes to issues of property. And so this is not something that is taught in most curriculums. Very important movement, uh, the IWW um, the, the quote unquote wobblies. Um, but there, there is this massive leftist movement, um, in the early 20th century that is multiracial. Um, and Eugene Debs runs for president, um, as, as a candidate, um, of this socialist party and sort of as the figurehead of this movement. Um, and so he, he does espouse these sort of similar ideas of equality that we see, you know, in someone like John Brown, he actually winds up, um, going to prison for sort of continuing to speak out 
uh, during World War One uh, against you know systems of inequality and oppression. Um, you know, consciously knowing right that he was going to go to prison for that. Um, still continues to speak out. He's a really admirable person. But I mean, they, there's there's a lot of people, right? You know, I, I know I don't want to like get into the weeds and just name some random people that no one's heard of, right? But like that's that would be a great place to start for people if they're looking for someone from the 20th century, you know, um, who's like seems to be part of a large movement. Uh, Eugene Debs um, is is a big one. Well, I will say this. Dr. Horn, um, I would like to order some research. <laughs> I'd like to order a book or two. I think it's part of our long-term insurance policy to create this, what I keep calling a positive white identity for those who might feel displaced and don't feel like they have a choice between being fully racist and bad or you know some other negative. But you just mentioned some folks. First of all, the Irish. You know, uh, I've read in black literature, black history literature about the Irish and the blacks working side by side. And one of the biggest threats to the system was that they were too close. They were a little too close with each other. Right. Um, that's old. So I'd love to start from there, maybe, and kind of just follow that that thread all the way until now and build a complete curriculum of positive white identity, not because you want to appease anybody, right. but because it actually would be good for us, like for all the rest of us, for that to be an option yeah. for white people. Can, can I ask, is it okay? Like, sure. do you think, I don't know, I, I'm skeptical of the way that, you know, people like Rufo frame uh, the teaching of our actual history as telling white children that they can't be good. You know, I, I taught in, you know, secondary ed and now I teach at university. I've never taught that once ever, you know, I've been doing this a long time, um, you know, but I, I wonder like, do you think perhaps that we do in fact already have sort of a positive view of, of whiteness and a positive white identity, assuming that we're not thinking, not talking about those things because like those things still exist. Right. And this is kind of their point. It's like, you know, we would have a positive white identity if only we didn't talk about racism. Yeah. And, and this is where I think the binary that they're creating is they're still offering you a negative white identity because they're holding up people like Andrew Jackson and others. And they're saying, let's see the goodness sure. of some of the people that did the worst things in history. Yeah. Like, let's not just talk about the bad things that they did. So the, so the, the people that they're offering you as the people you should study are actually not a positive white identity in my mind, right? Like the people we just named, the people who all along were the pushback on the negative things that those folks were doing. Um, they existed. Yeah. And their stories aren't told. That's right. Their stories aren't really told. Even amongst the Rufos of the world, they don't want those people's story told, I'm sure. Right. Like, like they probably don't want those guys told. They want to, they want you to talk about Thomas Jefferson as being a good guy without reading the notes on Virginia. Right. Or learning um, about Sally Hemings. Right. Grooming. Right. Yeah. I mean, the dude's a, a classic groomer. Right. So that's not a, really a positive, like, that's not the guy I would want to hold up as my guy, right? Like, you know, if I, you know in actuality, like, if, if I was thinking like I think, but I'm a white parent, I would want to give um, my kid kind of white examples that still meet with my values. Mm, okay. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Like my, you know, I would want progressive values sure. to be taught. So I'm not going to hold up Washington and yeah. Jefferson and, and Madison and all those as the guys. I'm going to hold up like some of the ones you named and tell a, a coherent story, though. That's the other thing is like we could popcorn names of people or whatnot. Mm -hmm. But I think as a historian, what you guys do really well is you help us understand how stories actually move on, right? And they're, they're coherent. 
Um, so anyways, uh, I hate, you know, doing this, but I love knowing people that are so educated and have like <laughs> access to how you put this all together. So I am kind of ordering uh, a product here. If not you, anybody listening, I just think like this would be a great area of invention and development. Maybe we'll do a spinoff podcast, the the good ones, right? (laughs) (laughs) The good ones. I'm all for it. Like, listen, I can understand how marginalized people um, listening to me who know that that's my my politics are so about liberation for marginal, marginalized people. I could see how they could see that this is, uh, they would consider this countercultural as an idea. It is. And it actually is probably um, a, the, one of the best strategies that we could have for addressing great replacement theory, right? No, I mean, I think that's a really, you know, interesting point. And honestly, you know, if we're talking about people with, you know, just progressive politics, then you are talking about people who are working across racial lines. You know, in some sense, you really are actually sort of doing that intellectual work, even as you're sort of picking out you know, some white faces, you're, you're telling a fuller story. I mean, I think that that, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways is a lot of what I try to do in in my classes is to kind of, as we're talking about these white backlashes, we're also talking about the egalitarians who they're fighting against, right? These are multiracial coalitions, you know? Um, And so there is, you know, I I think at heart, a a real, uh, you know, progressive liberatory message there. Um, I guess it's just all about the, the, the packaging, right? Yeah. And I, I, you know, and I'll, I'll end on this. Um, <laughs> Cause I have joked before that white people are becoming the worst minority ever, right? Like they, like we probably need to do a minority webinar with them that helps them transition and help them understand what it's like, you know, like, listen, not everybody in the room is going to be enamored with everything you say anymore. And, you know, we need to just do a webinar on how to be a minority right. in the United States, because as they become a minority, they're already showing signs of being a very bad one. Like not right. like the, you know, they're not going to be a great minority. I joke about that, but our, you know, is the of color majority, if it happens and if that becomes true, are they going to be a good majority? That's an equal question. Mm, yeah. And part of that question is, if we were in control right now, how would we look at white people, right? How would we, would we have a positive story? And I can guarantee you right now, if you gave a test of most social justice people who are of color and working for of color issues, they probably couldn't name some of the good white people like ever, Right. So it's, it's a deficiency that we all share um, and that we need to get over. And the only one who can help us with that are historians. Like they're, I think they're the only ones who could pull it together. So anyways, listen, I am very grateful to have you in the network and, and to know you. For people listening, actually, if you go to Substack and you just search at Dr. William Horn, uh, it'll take you to his Substack. And his Substack uh, is called In Case of Emergency. Right, right, right. Um, I should have mentioned um, that, the title. This, so. <laughs> Yeah, so, so much better um, at this than me. <laughs> <laughs> lots of good stuff to read. You know, listen, I want to get the information out. Um, thank you so much for coming on. We will definitely love to have you back anytime. Oh, thank you. I, I appreciate it. I would love to be back. And this concludes another episode of The Citizen Stewart Show. We'll catch you guys on the next show. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Ravi at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the Branch's podcasts at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.